roll. We're gonna, we, we good? Yeah, everything's live. Righto, so, uh, hey, Heston Russell, glad to have you on the show, mate. Uh, we're just starting off, so we're episode four now. Don't bother putting the episode number on. It'll on Facebook, it'll be episode three. On Instagram, it'll be episode two. See if you can follow it, we can't. Um, mate, <laughs> glad to have you on. Uh, can you talk, talk, talk to us a bit about yourself, mate? And- um, good to be here, boys. First and foremost, thanks for having me. So um, a little bit about me, ex-army like yourselves, ex-Townsville like yourselves. I sort of joined the military straight out of school, uh, went to ADFA in Canberra for three years, then RMC for one year, uh, and went up to Turaya as a young lieutenant. Um, spent three years up there. First year it was in Timor. Um and then another two years before coming down to Sydney, doing selection in 2010, um, and then spending the rest of my career within Special Operations Command, mainly in two commando regiment. Um, during that time, managed to get myself over to Afghanistan four times, um, Iraq once, got on exchange to the US Rangers for a year, and then came back and ran the Special Forces Selection course for a couple of years. And then ended up getting out officially at the start of this year after uh, a year of long service leave, during which I spent the time to partner with a company to bring a brand called Barry's Boot Camp over, which you've all now had a lovely sample of. <laughs> that was that's a hectic. That is hectic. Barry's Boot Camp. That's good. I'm glad you guys actually got in there. And then, um, yeah, at the moment doing a bit of a consulting piece and working for a um, startup company, startup tech nutrition company. That's, that's, that's busy, me in a plate. Yeah, it's all right. That is busy. Dad to a young four-month-old pup. Got my partner Blake living uh, Kings Cross, and don't plan on going anywhere else at the moment. So, yeah. <laughs> so. Four, t- four tours in Afghan, one in Iraq. Uh, very, very quick to specify the four tours. So it was four, I call them four trips. So two of them were like more administrative trips. Like one was, a, I was the PSD um, personal security officer to Julia Gillard on her first trip over there, which was like a two-week stint, um, but two proper rotations as in combat rotations. One was like the SOTG-18 uh, in 2012, um, and then the other one was with the US um, with a classified task force they had over there in 2015. So noting that there was a classified task force as well, has any you've got any like experiences that, that you can share? Oh, 100%. Yeah, you just can't, you know, name names, specifics and yeah. locations, but apart from that, and capabilities, but otherwise can talk through absolutely everything else, yeah. Because that's what I think uh, a lot of, like in the Australian sort of, Space. No one. You hear a lot of podcasts and, and a lot of people. So the, the the gangs doing their black rifle coffee, and they share a lot of stories and stuff like that. Mm. But there's nothing really coming out in the Australian space. I think. Yeah, for sure. Do you know what I mean? No, I, I definitely do. I mean, it's there's a lot coming out at the moment about special operations. <laughs> uh, but we'll leave that one off. To <laughs> but it's a, it's a very unique space whereby you know we all sort of have that protected identity or conservative identity um, status piece, which is more so to protect like yourself and your loved ones should, you know, something happen back here on the home front. But it's also been a bit of a double-edged blade whereby by not releasing information, you know, in, in the void of information, people make assumptions. Um, and it's also some of your best PR, some of the stories you can get out there to even encourage, like, the next generation to come along. So, Or a recruiting drive. 100%. And that's where I sort of would love to, you know, put more of my efforts into and see, you know, things like this. It's actually a, a great asset we should be giving back to actually telling what, you know, the first question is what do you actually do? Everyone's mm-hmm. got the great poster picture, but what do you actually do a day in the life of? Yeah. Um, how will it benefit me? What life experience will I get? And that's why we're... 
here to chat through things like this. Yeah. Right. I don't think an hour is going to be enough time. <laughs> so, I mean, there, there is always Heston Russell always gets there's a there's a precursor to that, and that is there's a story about a helicopter. What's that? Don't know about it. You don't know about it. Really I think I know. Because, oh. because, no, actually, like, we, we I met, think I know. All right. Are you allowed to talk about that one? Which one? About oh, me, oh, me like going to climb up a rope? Is that? Is, well, there could be another one. Okay. <laughs> so we met a couple of months ago for the first time, and I just knew that you, you kind of had a name and you have got like, massive social following. You're majoring to commando. That was about it. And, uh, and so I was like asking the boys, like, I'll go and meet this dude. Any any background stories? And the only one that kept coming up was like, no one really can put their finger on it to say if it's, it's real or not. But there's a rumour of a job where you're in a helicopter and may or may not have made the pilot put it down in a hot LZ and, no? Yeah, and we, I t- I've got a different helicopter story. But oh, yeah. I'm not, <laughs> I'm the job, mate, so tell the real one. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. No, no. Oh, I don't know. There was one. Yeah, on, you had boys you needed help out. Yeah, there's one on a trip where just myself and my poor old Sig probably went a bit above and beyond into a location where otherwise, you know, people might not have. My mother certainly would have scolded me. She might be listening to this podcast. I don't know. Yeah, but yeah, no, it all went out to an end result. I'm sure we'll talk about that, you know, when someone else needs help, the last thing you're thinking about is your own personal safety. So that was like a a no brainer. The other one I usually get told about was once on a. um, training job actually back here on the domestic counterterrorism role and one of my first years as a new captain in two commando actually went to fast rope out of a helicopter and didn't end up stacking away the um, strap that holds the fast rope down and it ended up getting wrapped around me and next thing I was sort of upside down uh, hanging from a helicopter about four or five metres below it, still on the um, fast rope, and there's, you know, it was over at the, the range facility whereby there were fences everywhere. The helicopter literally couldn't come down to put me there. Um, so the, the rumour is a man with lesser biceps would have died, but I was, <laughs> I was able to climb my way back up the fast rope, which isn't an easy thing when you're sort of hung up, inverted in full rig, um, with your, unable to use your legs, and sort of with the help of the guy up, up top, got unhooked and then lowered myself back down. So that's, that's usually the one I have to defend, but... A little bit more embarrassing, anyway. Uh, the other one, the one I heard is not embarrassing. It's fucking heroic. Yeah, uh, good. It was a bit of fun. It's never heroic at the time. Everything, you know, when you start telling stories about it, it sounds much more nostalgic than it was. But at the time, you know, you're, you're eating dirt. You're fucking annoyed at something else. Sorry, I'm sure we can swear on this. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a military podcast you can't swear on would be interesting. Okay. No one will listen to the fucking. Yeah. No. Um, so the, the, I think that's the thing. Like people put their own soundtracks to, to so you tell the story about uh, what happened and, and that without the information and yep. getting that coming out, then people make up the parts of it. But not only that, they think there's some crazy soundtrack attached to yeah. an experience or there's – and you're like, no, it's just – I was just do, sort of doing it, I suppose. And that's it. I have that saying that everything looks cool on a poster. But I remember going through my – um. Uh, training course like our amphibious uh, insertion course uh, at, two, at SFTC you know and you're freezing cold having to lower yourself into the Sydney Harbour which is full of bull sharks and all sorts of crap and then having to like slowly come out and emerge you know with, with your weapon up something you see on like a Navy SEALs video and we're like that looks great on the poster about the time like, like this you're, is having to, you're having to piss yourself in a dry suit it's freezing fucking cold you don't think you can get eaten by a shark you have to wear a sign stick for safety which looks like a lure dangling off you yeah it's all, all very different to you there doing it yourself. Yeah, definitely. I, I honestly, I, I between to, to get you on and, and to just speak about that that 
the helicopter thing. That was because uh, you still talked about. Uh, I had another bloke just phone me up. Uh, Where's Walsh? He's a lieutenant, young lieutenant in Wanara. Okay. And he's phoned up and he's like, "Oh, what are you doing, man?" I'm like, "Oh, not much. I'm just about to do a podcast with Heston Russell." And he's like, "Fuck yeah, Heston Russell!" I'm like, "You're uh, talked about in every circle in the military." It's, it's actually a funny thing. I'm sure we'll jump onto it. It's sort of the essence of a lot of the great stuff you guys do, but. It, you know, when you're within the community and I don't like to talk about myself, it's enjoying hearing people like still talk about you like that. It's like more of a camaraderie thing. But then to sort of leave all of that and have to reinvent yourself and like introduce to people um, who just sort of take you on the face value of a resume or I, I enjoy being taken on the face value of a conversation, but there's so not so less more, less more, less than any other sort of appreciation for where you've come from and what you've done. And not that we do it for that. It's just more so, particularly in a world where we all need words of affirmation or positive reinforcement, you pull that rug from under your feet and you're sitting there reinventing yourself. You don't sort of more so have that safety net to fall back into. Um, so it is it's actually kind of like nostalgic for me to hear people still saying that, more so just to feel like you have a good reputation. Um, then you know to be made to sound like anything cooler than that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that's and that's the next thing. So uh, we were talking to some of the guys at Barry's boot camp. Yeah, and uh, they were like, "Oh, fucking, how you transitioned out of defence and succeeded?" And a lot of the guys. And then we we were getting text messages last night and 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 stuff from some of the guys going, "Hey, we fucking listen to your podcast. It's fucking sick, and it's helping you know dudes who have isolated themselves and moved away. Yeah, and maybe not have transitioned and got back on the." The wagon, uh, and then they listen and they get, a bit, and so getting you on yeah. to talk about that and going forward and how you went from a major in, you know, two commander yeah. to Barry's boot camp. Barry's boot camp, and then, and then how was the transition and, and yeah. what hurdles did you hit? Oh, for sure. I mean, to be honest, I probably had the sort of best position whereby I managed to self manage my own transition before I actually transition. And what I mean is, I had, you know, um, about eight months worth of full time leave stored up between long service and not taking annual leave that I then took at half pay and extended to about a year to a year and a half of long service leave, during which time sort of went to the US, worked for Barry's over there, then, then brought it here. And the whole time, it more so mentally, it just had like a safety net I could have always gone back into. I never actually had to do that. I really sort of segregated myself from this to that. And as most of you guys know, you sort of people like us just throw ourselves into these situations and fully immerse ourselves, mind, body and spirit. And that was, you know, I was fortunate enough that it came off. You know, there wasn't really, the plan B was to go back to defence. I uh, definitely maintained that plan B, but I just went, you know, balls to the wall at what I actually had a passion about as opposed to looking for a uh, financial dividend. Um, and I had the, the experience of when I was in the US 2015 with the Rangers, that's when I first came across Barry's as a consumer, but then also the, the community aspect to it. The business model itself had all these sort of motivators and drivers that I saw smart business, but more so the people it brought to it. You know, I enjoy surrounding myself with like-minded people, motivated people, people who experience the value of people, also who are big into health and fitness and healthy lifestyles and all that. And I just saw, you know, is that natural personal next step to move from one community to the next whereby I could then achieve, you know, a more stable um, life base as well. My last appointment to Iraq uh, was in 2017 and that was the first time I had truly experienced FOMO essentially uh, when I sort of knew I could be doing some of this job back home and Blake and I had first been together for just a year and spending like four months away from your loved one was like real and I only 
really truly got a perspective for what others go through with wives and kids back home. Before then, I'd just been, you know, a single young officer going after every deployment I could. But then I was like, hey, this has been great. This has been fun. But particularly that time of my career where you're looking at, you know, moving on from a major, your interaction with the boys essentially becomes less and less. What truly values me, time for me to invest in my future. So sort of everything lined up and I guess then I was able to put all my motivation into that single point of success. Concentration of effort, as I would say. And so, because um, I think that's the biggest threat is that. And we're speaking, uh, we spoke to Paul Warren and Philip Thompson, uh, and it's that. Um, if you're going to get out, don't just, like, drop the ball, like, and leave short. You've got to come up with a plan, and you need to give time, especially for everything to go through. There needs to be a step and a process through, and... Uh, you need to come up with a fucking plan. Oh, Otherwise, sure. you're fucked. And then you're going to end up back in the army 12 months later. Yeah, right? and in, in a much worse place than where you came from. You know, from the reputation of the guy seeing you come back in like you failed through to your own, like, internal monologue. I mean, for sure, leaving, living in Sydney as an officer and then leave, losing your rental assistance, losing your um, health benefits, like, even having to go apply for Medicare, like, all these little life um, capability bricks that you take for granted, you, you have to sit down and, and do... Whether it's even a, even a bloody C-map, mate, you need to do your own iron map. You need to sit there and literally put all the pieces together. Otherwise, you are not setting yourself up for success. And it's crazy because coming from the military, we all pride ourselves so much on our deliberate planning and operational processes. Yet in our own lives, when people make one of the biggest decisions of their lives, they don't do any formalised planning. They just go on an emotive response. Oh, wicked digger, shit civvies, like 90% of my mates. <laughs> <laughs> That's what they were. They were high-performing soldiers with super low, low-performing people. That's it. Outside of... But so as an officer, mm. like you're a high-performing dude, and I'm not trying to blow smoke up you, but you, you obviously... You got some time management skills. You you know how to set yourself up for success. Did the military give you anything when you're like, all right, I'm I'm thinking about getting out. What's what's the exit plan for an officer? Yeah, good question. I mean, most of the exit plan for an officer is people telling you not to do it and people trying to put other shiny things in front of your face. Um, yeah, no. I'm, I'm a high performer because I was specially selected and specially trained, that's all. Like, I had the benefit of going through, like, one of the most mature selection and training processes, which is the military period, and then sort of like a little upgrade block on top of that, which is one thing I've rapidly realised that our peers within the corporate world, like, not of their own um, invention or design, but just haven't gone through a professional learning and how-to-learn experience. The transition piece for an officer is probably far less structured um, than my experiences as uh, an officer in charge of soldiers uh, for an OR would be. Um, just in that, you know, officers are sort of relied upon to, you know, manage others and, you know, to be more responsible for themselves and things like that. I actually found it probably one of the most frustrating and disappointing processes of my entire career as far as, you know, having to actively chase after people, having to chase down your own admin, you know, basically talking to people who, you actually knew what the advice they were giving you was completely wrong from your own insights, having managed soldiers in the military. Um, yeah, I don't want to go on it too poorly, but it was actually, it was honestly, and I did it over a period. Once I actually decided that I was going to discharge, it was at least six months before it did, so I thought there was plenty of time to it. The next thing I just find the absolute, you know, rush to the finish, all of a sudden, Everyone else is reaching out to you, um, requiring you to step through this, this, and this, which you could have been doing over the last year. Yeah, I mean, I mean, this, this is going to sound kind of sadistic, but it makes me happy to hear that it's bad for you too. Because we're, <laughs> we're at the moment, like most diggers, the transition process is 
there isn't one. Yeah. And everyone goes, everyone, even even me, like to an extent, thinks that officers have more structure in their transition out. They get helped along the way a lot more. And if, if it's not the case, like it's not a good thing, yeah. but it just it says that there's no discrimination with officers versus diggers. It's just the army doesn't know how to transition people yeah. out properly. I mean, and I unfortunately I need to talk to more of my peers to actually give more of a systemic answer. I can just sort of answer for myself. And I do know that mine was a bit of a unique case. But um, yeah, I mean, the issue I see, particularly with the transitions piece, is there's such an administrative focus from administrative focus people, um, most of which who are, you know, civilian contractors or, as we all know, have like hung around long enough in the military that they kind of start to lose and void from the active military, that they sort of void from their um, relevance and perspective to sort of where you're coming from. And it's just such a box ticking risk. Um, what do we call it? Risk mitigating process. Hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think the transition piece. I don't think. I don't think it's an actual. I mean, we spoke about it on the first podcast we did. We spoke about it. Um, it's like uh, you get someone who's never been in the army or never transitioned out of the army. They're like, we're going to tell you how to do it, yeah. and then the information they're giving, like you said, is fucking all wrong. Yeah. Think about it. you guys. What, what's the what's the process to, from application through to becoming a qualified soldier in, say, the infantry corps these days? How long does that take? Well, you know what I mean. When, last, when you're a single still six months. It's... Or yeah. to get in, you mean? Or to get in from going through Kapuka, from going through Singer, and then being like, you know, read a deploy soldier. Well, it's three and three now, isn't it? Six. Three, yeah. three and three with training, but then yeah. I'll probably the closest I've done it. But, um... Before, I think they put me on like a, they told me it was going to be a 14 month waiting process just yeah, to get sure. in. But so, like, let's say the actual training piece is a minimum six months. And six for the months. officer, the minimum training piece is like 12, sorry, 18 months at RMC. Mm-hmm. You know, to onboard you into, you know, this highly professional, effective, effective system, the, the, the outboarding, like where, where's the course, where's the program? It is, it's an administrative focus. But as you know, during our initial training, you're not just training on admin, you're training on, you know, Stuff. physicality, emotional intelligence, mental health and resilience, all these things. And the only way that's being achieved on the way out is through palming you off to different people who don't have the perspective where you yeah. come from beforehand to achieve, again, that, that risk-mitigating process. Yeah, I think that, trans- that that needs to get tightened up 100%. We just need to turn it into a fucking course. You need to turn it, it into needs to be a proper course. System. It needs to be course, and I think it needs to be, I mean, obviously, we're, we're in this space now. It needs to be run through the private sector. It needs to be external entities going, working with DBA going, this is a group of people that have done it. Yeah. These are the these are the lessons they've learned. Because even the fact that you're using the term onboarding says to me that you're, you've learned some shit post-soldier because that's mm-hmm. not a military term. Yeah. And if you're going to take six months to onboard someone, that's turning them from civvy to soldier. Mm-hmm. You've got then got to turn them from soldier to civvy that's another onboarding process, which should be the same duration, yep. but it just doesn't exist yet. All right. I mean, if we're, if we're sitting here solving our world problems, if we were in charge, I mean, the, the biggest resource we have, like I was saying before, missed opportunity with PR and recruiting is exactly those veterans who have discharged, who would, you know, I would turn around tomorrow and put my hand up to help someone put together a program to effectively, you know, um, help people transition from defence. Yep. You know, as opposed to... Before, unless we're diving into the civil sector to get you know, ex-veterans, like there's so many people out there that have that just personal satisfaction for looking after the emotional intelligence or the um, mental resilience of people that would, that would be there to do it. And they're people who've been come from the military, know how to structure the course, know how to have the context. Yeah, anyway. How, how is it now that you're out mm-hmm. looking at, uh, because um, we're still developing the process, but... Mm. 
I always thought a veteran, when you, when you join the army as a kid, like or you, when you join up and you sort of think about being some steely-eyed fucking dude who gets it in the mind, like when you're a kid, right? When you're a fucking, like a, you know what I mean? And you join up a very different child. Was that your, was that your, because that was my part too. Like, was that yeah. your, what was your part to be wanting to become a gunfighter? Um, my dad was in the military, so we got to sort of move around and get immersed in the military life, and it was always fun. Then I basically had the privilege of having... Um, um, a good family friend that dad had worked with, um, his dad, four years ahead of me as my lead scout in life, essentially. He went through ADFA, RMC, and then 4-Hour Commando, just at the point when I was, you know, getting ready to exit high school. So from as soon as I saw him start that process, and he was like a, a mentor and child idol to me, I was like, that's exactly what I want to do. So I didn't know what I wanted to do before grade 8, and then at grade 8, I went to the recruiting office and says, how do I become a commando? Um, and sort of the process went from there. Steely-eyed, not so much, but... (laughs) (laughs) And then, so I guess, like, so leading out from that, you thought being a combat veteran or a veteran uh, would would be a badge of honour where you're like, and now it seems to be this fucking victimhood kind of place where... Uh, I don't know what they seem. Yeah, no, it's a good conversation. I mean, let's even just talk about the word veteran. Like for me, back in the day, you know, the word veteran was like you know your Vietnam and Korea boys. And then when I was in the military, the word veteran I saw start to get thrown around far too much by the guys who had got out and were trying to basically milk their career to provide some form of financial review, a financial um, benefit or dividend. Um, I honestly like never really considered myself a veteran. You just sort of consider yourself doing what you're doing, yeah. you know, serving me. I don't know. It was an interesting point. And I guess I never really joined to wear a badge of honour. I sort of joined to really – I just wanted to actually enjoy what I did and get some satisfaction out of what I did. And then, as you guys know, once you're in, you're in there serving for that personal satisfaction but also for the satisfaction of being with that team, being with that group, it's being with that community. It's huge. The hardest part of my career – well, there are a few, but like my most um, – Initial hardest part of my career was when I was told I wouldn't be allowed to stay on as a platoon commander, which, as you guys know, is that primal interface with the soldiers. Like, that was really the first decision point on my career and life forward in the military because you you spend so much time and energy and effort working with the boys only to then move up into an administrative function, you know, and you sort of... And you get two, what, you get two years tops, maybe well, three I was now enough, the yeah, model? I was fortunate enough to have, like, three years as a, as a normal uh, infantry platoon commander and then two years within special forces. But, you know, even then... And you just sit there going, you know, I've trained with this group of guys. There's pretty much nothing in the world that I would happily say we couldn't put our hand up to at least give it a red-hot crack go to solve the problem for you. Um, you know, without you having to reinvent capability, reinvent leadership lines, reinvent relationships. But the fact of the, the matter is that the big machine is to keep on turning and they need you to pro- provide that capability elsewhere. But It's like the Yank model, up, up and out or up or out. There's, there's guys like who don't want, like I would like, I want to be a platoon commander for the rest of my life or, yeah. or I want to be a, a section commander. And they talk about the American model, where you have to progress or they boot you out. Yeah, and sure. then they talk about, on the opposite side of that, they were speaking about maybe there some people who are just really good section commanders. Some people are good at administratives, like, so, so yeah. sergeants. And then there's some people that um, maybe, because I, I think they separate there. They, they have a... A staff sergeant. Yeah, they have the, the, the first warrant, sergeant. warrant officer scheme. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and you go, I do now appreciate it that you can't get too tailored an individual with large processes like a military structure. Mm-hmm. Um, but 
I mean, I often say it about leader, the best leadership is actually those who understand and can um, appreciate how their soldiers feel valued. You know, you guys ever read the book, The Five Love Languages? No. Nah, it's, you replace the, word, replace the word love with valued, you know, how people feel valued in the workplace. It talks about words of affirmation, time well spent, physical touch, giving and receiving gifts. Did I say words of affirmation already? Uh, or acts of service? Fuck. Words of affirmation, acts of service, giving and receiving gifts, time well spent, and physical touch. Physical touch probably isn't one to lead into the workplace, but basically understanding how people feel valued. You should have told my that. <laughs> <laughs> how people feel valued to an organisation, you know. So putting everyone through the pipeline of such as up and out is great for the system, but you could actually achieve so many more benefits if you spend some time analysing how your junior leaders and commanders draw their personal and professional value, you know, and accept that they can provide you more of a combat capability or more of an operational capability should they be segregated to one system or have the option to do that, while others who want to pursue authority, who want to pursue rank and position, like crack on. That's the, the way some people are. You know, being painted with the same brush is a byproduct of being such a big and efficient system. But particularly then applying that to the, to the corporate, that is one thing I actually do see corporate structures uh, achieving much greater dividends. You know, people always want to rise to the top, but those who don't want to are enabled the time and place to be there and, and sit in their positions and enjoy the job they enjoy doing every single day. And that's why they're mostly there for life. It's 100% is you've got dudes and one hour and that that you've sent along the way who are fucking good section commanders and they are, they're with the boys and they connect with the lads and they know how they operate and they can lead. It's not loudership. They're still lead, they're leaders. And then, is that loudership? Yeah. What's you know, that? You, know, you get those long people. Oh, gotcha. They, all they do is yell. They don't actually yeah, have any. I'm with you. Like, I'm with you. Like, do you really? The authoritative it? leaders, yeah, not yeah. the actual leadership leaders. Yeah. yeah gotcha. Uh, and, and they're good at it. And then they try and just ram the next rank down the throat. Yeah. Like, it's not that they're scared of progressing. They don't want to do it. Not with you. They, that's not, not what you join the so other. No, for sure. And especially during my time at Tour, I was very disappointed to see, you know, a couple of my very good session commanders leave exactly because of that. They didn't want to step up to those positions. And then having said that, that is one of the most uh, incredible mature processes I got to then see in two commando, whereby for the majority, though, like the senior NCOs you have in there, you know, done you know, eight, ten trips and been there for 20 years and don't want to, like, go and progress and move on. Um, at the end of the day, it is hard. You have to reach in and pull some up. Otherwise, the unit's not going to have an RSM or whatnot. But the majority, like, you know, I was the youngest and most inexperienced dude in my platoon for the first two years of being in two commando. And it was absolutely amazing because people had been given, all the soldiers were there because they'd been given that opportunity. They'd been recognised for how they feel valued to the system. And they provided, you know, a 10-time multiplier value to the system of being appreciated as such. That's what, mate, it, it is once, yeah, <laughs> given the perspective of just the, the two different parts of the careers, I have great benefits and life experience from <coughs> both, but having worked in that, you know, upgraded that, sorry, that more enhanced, specially selected, specially trained system that also had its inner processes worked out to enable that, I, I could never sort of go back. But again, that's a byproduct of being a unit of 800 people as opposed to an army of, what, 10, 12,000 people. You just can't. Yeah. The, the effort required to do this can't then be scaled and applied to over here without, you know, resources and dividends that don't actually meet up. And so uh, now you're out, mm -hmm. you've done, what is it like working with series? <laughs> um, I mean, they're all different as per anyone in any position. You know, in the military you have those... Um, boob Zulus through to those the high achievers <laughs> um, 
yeah, it's a very interesting process and structure and situation in that what I was like saying before, in the military, in particular the last part of my career, I had the privilege of working with people who were, one, aligned on a cultural purpose. You know, they were there for a reason. And they also, they also understood the, the larger vision of where you're meant to be, which is sort of the, the fundamentals of, of a good culture. Um, then most of them have been through some form of professionalised training, whether it's like the six-month or 18-month ab initio training phase to join the military through to, you know, your subsequent career and promotion courses. Like, and they've actually been taught how to learn, not just what to learn. Most people who don't have military experience have been through their schooling, might have been through university. Again, they're sort of learning for an outcome, so they know what they need to learn, but haven't so much been taught how to learn, and then are thrown into their position. And the way in which they then escalate in position within their company or business is through time in position, performance, or the authority provided. You know, barely any workplaces these days, in my opinion, have a really great and professional structure of teaching management, of actually teaching leadership. I've never encountered more leaders who solely rely on their authority to achieve motivating factors for the people they're responsible for, which as you guys know, you know, essentially is leading through a type of fear, a fear of failure, a fear of getting in trouble, whereas true leadership actually inspires people to have a fear that is external to themselves, a fear of letting the team down, a fear of not representing themselves or their brand or their position. That has been one of the biggest factors, but it's not the the corporate or the civil sector's fault. You know, they just haven't been taken through those processes. And we do it as volunteers. You know, in their workplace, some workplaces do do it really well and they excel, but at the same time, you're doing it as a requirement of the workplace or a requirement in order to progress. Not truly as a volunteer, but you're a volunteer for your job and position. So it's it's so hard to compare the two. Having said that, unfortunately, I do see the majority of senior leaders that I've worked in and around, and not you know in direct employment, but just where you you know touch and rub shoulders, so rely on their own positions. I've never met more, as we call armchair generals, actually in the civilian workforce than in the military. You know. Um, because they, yeah, anyway, we might go into that. <laughs> That's, I mean, that, that exact statement is there's, there's a big market opening up for ex-military guys to come into big, big companies yep. and teach them how to reshape their culture. Yep. They, they look towards military guys, and I mean, that's not this isn't for everyone, but they look towards the military and go, you guys used to do the worst shit ever yep. for the worst money ever, and you wanted to be there. How do we instill that now, guys? And you walk in there and you're like, to us it looks obvious. It's like you treat them like shit and there's no like camaraderie within your workforce at all because they get to work at nine, they punch into a computer until lunch and they leave, come back an hour later, punch into a computer until five and then fuck off as quick as they can the minute it turns five. Like you've got to make your work, they've got to come to work because they want to hang out with the people and be there. Yeah. And it seems like a no-brainer. Um, with you. I mean, and that it was a huge learning curve for me. So, you know, I one sort of job I had to work on, um, I, you know, got a personal call up from the CEO saying, hey, like, I need you to come and help us um, establish a cult-like following, you know, particularly with your skills and experience. That's where we need to be. Um, and then, you know, down the track with that being my primary focus, because as we know, you build a cult-like following, you build a culture, you will achieve dividends far into the long run, but it's going to take some short-term commitment and, you know, expenditure, resources, whatnot, yeah. only to then sort of turn around a little bit down the track um, after watching that pers- person, like, you know, progress to that armchair general status of like, hey, but in the Excel spreadsheet, 
you know, we need to tighten up this OPEX cost, you know, basically bringing in factors that restrict your ability to actually breed and foster culture for the sake of profit, profit, profit. And it was a huge revelation for me to realise in the military, you know, essentially working for a not-for-profit organisation, you're working for a government organisation, you're not there worrying about profits or profit and loss statement, um, you're there worrying about effects and, you know, physical effects on the battlefield, human effects within, you know, the culture, within the environment, within society. The corporate world runs on profits and loss and you need to be able to adapt to that. And very often, you know, the, the desire for a bit culture has to be tapered with the fact that you have to at the same time achieve dividends for them because not many leaders in the corporate space these days truly appreciate the long-term dividends of culture because they're caught up in the short-term dividends of requiring to provide a dividend to either like, you know, sell their product, you know, establish a higher EBITDA for their business, establish a higher sale option for their business. Um, most of the businesses I've come across who do really appreciate those are actually the ones who are, you know, self-made, self-owned. Um, yeah, and it was just a huge learning curve for me to just realise that when you're in the military, you're actually in an organisation that isn't worried about profit, it's worried about proficiency. And it's real good at the shared suffering piece, eh? Hey? just generating. <laughs> one in all in. Yeah, one in all sure. in. Yeah, and it's like the, the companies out there now that are doing the best are the ones, like the big tech companies that, that you see on the ground level, like, face level. Anyway. Yeah. They care about their people. Yeah. And that's what I think that's what everyone misses that when they look at the military, they look at movies where there's someone yelling and there's always this barking horse and they think it's all about discipline. Yeah. But good leaders in the military are the ones that care about the boys. Yeah. And that's what you find like, what was it, leadership versus leadership? If, if someone's just yelling orders at you, you don't actually give a fuck about them. You don't really want you, you do what you're told so you don't get in trouble, but yeah. that's about it. And the good leaders in the military are the ones that actually care about the boys. And that's when you go to a good company and that's where the parallels are. And everyone looks at the military and goes, we want to get those guys in to teach culture. All it is is give a fuck about your employees. Yeah. But care about their well-being and you're good. Yeah, and it is a, it is actually like a different, difficult path and journey that I can sort of now start to appreciate um, and will continue to learn about. You know, you say like the big tech companies. We all know, you know, like you hear about the Apples and the Google working spaces. And I'd love to go back. I would now appreciate that they can achieve those workspaces and efficiencies and cultures now that they have the cushion yeah, yeah. of cash. Um, I would be so intrigued to see, you know, where in their progression that the, the yes. tilt started to focus towards them. Like it's act, and to be honest, it's so hard for like startups and other companies that work around now um, to be able to build that culture from the start. Because if you don't make a profit, and the Australian market is one of the hardest places to, you know, even dabble in entrepreneurship or startups. If you don't make a profit, you're dead. Mm. So where do you sort of cut what you want to do with culture here to achieve profit and then catch up later, but then when culture's already established, it's so hard to go back and change it. Um, so, you know, those 1% to 2% of companies who've been able to do that, I take my absolute hat off to them. Yeah. Um, and it's literally come down to those people who have put their entire efforts and investments into it and are at the, the root of them good people who understand emotional intelligence. Um, but that, that's, a, that's a very hard thing to come across. Oh, 100%. And in the startup space now, everyone wants to mimic those big companies. Yeah. Like you said, I'd love to see what they were like two years in if they were just cracking whips and that's, that's, you, you moment, just get to see it and hear about the figureheads but like just imagine <coughs> and once, once you're inspired to a purpose you know the culture comes along with it but yeah. at the same time you know making making the numbers go from red to black must have been a very interesting process that I'm sure they learn from but what were their people like in and around the business at that time the fine line we're walking at the moment is everyone everyone in the startup space wants to be like that so they go and they go let's build this cushy office and we give our guys flexible work hours 
and then they employ young Australian kids who take the piss yeah. and they do fuck all and they work for two hours a day and they use all the, the lounges and the ping pong tables and stuff and you get nothing done. So there's, there's, there's got to be a balance. Yeah, that's and that's it. where a lot no of No point having a great going. culture if you have no productivity. Wicked culture, yeah. no business. Yeah, that's, that's called the pub. Like. <laughs> <laughs> that is called the pub. That's really, I've never heard that before. That's a good one. Is it venture capitalism that's destroyed? So you go through an accelerated startup, an incubation phase, and then an accelerate, and then a uh, you know venture capitalists get a hold of you and go. There's I can see money in this. Yeah. We're going to grow it. We're going to expand overseas. Then we're going to sell it, yeah. and so they don't give a fuck about a culture or, or an ex- a, a, like a long lasting business. All they see is the dollar sign. So the culture is not important. Uh, and then on the offside of that is that like we're saying, you, you build the culture, but with no productivity, yeah. you're fucked anyway. But I will, yeah. As long as someone can keep their head afloat and establish the culture, like we all in this room, most people know, like the dividends will come. It's just your own plan on when you need those dividends to come, how long you are in the game um, and, and how large you want to grow in scale. There is a point where, you know, there's diminishing returns, but I mean, I'm the biggest stickler for focus on your culture first and foremost. And like, you will make money. As long as you have a product that you can sell that people want, because you're essentially anything you're doing these days is solving someone's problem, so they want a product. You build the basis on your culture, like it will carry you through to fruition. That's my limited non-starting up my own company type <laughs> things, but working, <laughs> along, yeah, working <laughs> alongside other companies, so I can just you know you're constantly just learning things anyway. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, I don't know how. Uh, going from because we're starting doing the the whole culture piece is I think is fucking uh, who, uh, Russell Bron Richard Branson Russell Bronson that's his cousin <laughs> twice removed they don't talk anymore <laughs> yeah. um, you talking about the virgin yeah, yeah, culture. yeah. yeah they do that. They, he's now culture from the start well at least he, well this is it like how do you know when you're not in there but you're oh, like, that's true yeah. Yeah. You, you, you definitely get it from the picture and you know from what they the PR they put out and what they perceivably demonstrate and represent um you know, the only people, just like a relationship, the only people who know what's actually going on are those who are inside it, um, the high performers and the low performers. So, because, uh, I mean, obviously, uh, we're, it's a mental health charity and we, and we like to expose the, the mental resilience piece yeah. and all that. Did I mean, has there been parts in your life that, that you have been down now? And what were your techniques that you used to get yourself out of it? And, and do they align with any of the, the stuff you're sort of seeing? Yeah, right. Um, mental health, I mean, it's a huge topic. It's a great topic. And to be honest, um, it's a topic I never took seriously. Um, it's a topic that very quickly for me became a dirty word, very quickly became a person squeezing the system, um, someone just trying to take it for advantage I saw it as weakness, I saw it as irrelevant um, until you experience it yourself. It's just one of those things that probably, you know, a stubborn, a person like myself who values themselves as as a a fast learner and a very perceptive person um, very quickly didn't realise it until, you know, you you experience it yourself. Um, I just want to quickly provide some context because I think it actually will help the subject, not, you know, again, to try and toot anyone's horn. But like, so my first appointment to, my first appointment was to East Timor in 2008. And during that deployment, I was 2008, so I was, I was, I turned 21 and I was turning 22 as a young platoon commander. Um, and my, I had a soldier commit suicide on that deployment, um, which was the first time I had personally ever sort of been confronted physically with suicide or even um, emotionally. Uh, and while there was 
a sense of feeling at the loss for the soldier, um, I, again, sort of perceived it as a weakness piece. Um, I did not have the mature emotional intelligence that I have subsequently been able to realise and learn to actually appreciate that there's so much more that goes into that than just thinking that someone had a weak moment. Like there's, there's just a, a whole foundation and a whole system and issues that, you know, you sort of sit back and go, how the fuck did I miss that? Um, right the way through to, you know, even throughout my career, I then went through the Special Forces training and selection is the most professional um, training I've ever been through uh, in that, you know, you basically have to go through, one was a, a six-week selection course where you're broken down to your absolute bones of a person um, and truly revealed your inner emotions, your inner motivations, and then built back up within, again, a like 12-month training process. And then the last two years of my career, I was responsible for going back and supporting the redevelopment of the commando selection course, basically from having such a focus on physicality through to selecting people who we could send, you know, out of uniform around to embassies or missions or whatever to achieve influence through competence and character, not through authority and presence. Um, and then throughout my career, again, I had a, another soldier who I had been his platoon commander for in two commando for two years, and then his XO for within my year as the adjutant, um, again, commit suicide as well. So all these things started to, to build together. And then by my time at transitioning from the defence, um, again, like the last two years supporting the selection course redevelopment, I worked with a high-performance team that ranged from sports and behavioural psychologists. You know, we did cortisol testing. We did um, all sorts of testing and more so training on awareness. You know, what actually happens when your body goes through stress? How do you know you're feeling stress? How your emotions actually fuel your outputs? Um, how stresses and strains therein can help, you know, your conversations and interactions with others at the end of the day, your ability to provide performance. So I would like to say that I have a very solid base to be able to now accurately say mental health is, is very real. Mental health is something that we don't pay enough attention to um, until it's too late. Um, me, myself, I have never, ever experienced any mental health issues until leaving defence. And I don't even like saying mental health issues because still in the back of my head I see a bit of weakness. But, you know, anxiety and depression, not like being so anxious that you're in at the same time or so depressed that you kill yourself, but living with those each and every day are very, very real. And there's probably not many people out there who don't actually do it, but they just don't, don't, aren't actually living with it, but don't actually just realise it themselves. And our key part is actually to help them to, one, break the stigma from it, and two, help them to realise the signs and symptoms of it, but also like how to, to deal with it and talk about it, because most of us here as, you know, want to be um, fit and assertive males have huge difficulties actually expressing when we're having weak moments or issues. I think, like, so they say, that I think there was another statistic came out, probably wrong again, 30, <laughs> they reckon 33% of dudes... Back yourself, mate. 33% of society suffer from a mental health condition, anxiety at some point in life, 33%, so... And and if and they don't talk, they won't talk about it. But if you can get if you can get high performing high end dudes that can can come on and be like, yeah, fuck, I, I but I, it's, and it's the high performing high end piece that actually is the the thing that gets us. Like you guys, you know, going to the RAP to get a chip, you would only ever do if like you were fucked and you couldn't do something. That's what happens with mental health. Nobody gets help until it's there and something's going to fucking happen. Or we're too, it's still too ashamed to make it happen when we do something to ourselves or we take our own actions. Um, most people don't appreciate 
they just don't know when the symptoms start to show until it becomes a problem. And as we all know, when the problem's already there, it's so much harder to put the fire out. You can't. You're literally trying to you're, you're trying to piss on a bushfire. And <coughs> mental health, uh, we, we had two suicides in one one suicide in one hour this year, one attempted. Yeah. And the guy goes, we come to work. He was a high performer, good dude. Yeah. He was a mortar sergeant. And then... I just get a phone call to the that, Like you guys know better than me. Just the statistics of guys post uh, military service, and I can now sort of appreciate, as you definitely could as well, where that comes from. It's not so much you know that they've seen bad shit or done bad shit. It's you just lose yourself, um, and you know. I have a puppy at the moment who used to fucking pee on the pee pad every single time, but now when I don't show him attention, he acts out. Most of these people are doing it to act out because they need fucking help. Yep. And the only way they know how to do that is through the only thing that directly affects them without sometimes realising that it does affect everyone else because they just need fucking help and they don't know. And again, in this like transition process, sitting down and teaching them you know, the fundamentals of emotional intelligence, teaching them what the clinical signs and symptoms of uh, feeling depression and anxiety are and not having, you know, the doctor from the RIP doing it, having like one of us standing up there and saying, hey, you are going to feel anxiety, you are going to feel depression. It's fucking fine. Everyone in society does it. This is what it looks like. This is what it feels like. You know, at the moment, you know, you stand up and be like, here's a pamphlet for yep. someone you can get in contact with. Why the fuck yeah. would I do that? They don't know who I am. They don't know it's where I come through. from. Yeah. Yep. Just to learn, learn that, that needs to happen. I spent like three years after I left the military going to a hairdresser or going to a shopping centre and, and getting sweaty. That's why I just don't go anymore. Going to a hairdresser or going to a shopping centre or sometimes even going like any, if I had to go to a party where I didn't know anyone, and just getting sweaty. Yeah. And I'm like, there's something fucking wrong with me. I sweat too much. So I went down for, for a year and a half, went down the avenue of researching, is there something wrong with my sweat glands? And it was just, I was just having like anxiety attacks. I was just getting anxious every time I was in some form of situation where I had no escape, where I thought I had to talk, small talk gets me all the time, it still does, I'm working on that. But <laughs> that's why the hairdressers killed me. Yeah. It's like I've got a small talk with this chick and it's probably going to be about nothing and I'm trapped in a chair for 20 minutes and I just got sweaty and I had no idea what it was. Yeah. If someone had told me that anxiety so, can do the X, Y, Z yeah. or this is what it's going to feel like when you get anxious, I could have nipped that in the bud straight yeah. on. I, go, oh, I need to go and see a psych or start working on ways to prevent anxiety. Yeah. Not spend a year and a half drinking more water and trying to clog up sweat ducts because that did absolutely <laughs> fuck all. But you, you're 100% right. You know, yeah. People need to learn this stuff. And the cortisol stuff, if they're studying that at yeah. 2 Commando. Mate, it's huge. They, it's, we, that, that, that's where we're getting oh, from. I never learned more so about, you know, we did cortisol testing, taking swabs, all that sort of good stuff, and actually appreciating the signs and symptoms of your body feeling stress and then how stress impacts impacts on you. I mean, like myself recently, oh, sorry, last year, knew that I was feeling a lot of stress just from, you know, working long hours and doing what I was doing. Went to the doc and he's like, yep, you're 100% correct. Like your cortisol levels are through the roof. The resulting factors for that in a man are your testosterone levels are so slow. Your mental clarity is like borderline adrenal fatigue. Your ability to like exercise right, eat and sleep right, gain muscle are all affected by these things. And most people think, you know, there's something clinically wrong going on with me. It's like, no, actually your own mental health and resilience, you're not looking after yourself emotionally. And you can actually self-regulate, you know. When you're feeling anxiety, take big, deep breaths. Ooh. It's common dog fuck, but people aren't actually taught to do that. Absolutely. Why the fuck are yogis the most chill people ever? Because they fucking breathe. The breathing. Yeah. It's so stupid, <laughs> but it's the fundamental to our entire existence. That's why we can't live underwater. You have to fucking breathe. 
and it self-regulates 90% of the conditions. And people are just taught that as a first line of defense, mate, when you go into the hairdresser, just start taking big, deep breaths. I guarantee you're going to bring your stress levels by 30, 40, 50, 60% down. But, and this is the, but this is the fucking thing, right? So there was a, the, the, one of the um, mates who went through some dramas this year, uh, he went to a psych and the psych was like, mate, all you got to do is breathe. And he's like, I don't need to fucking breathe. I've been, <laughs> I've been breathing for 35 years. I don't know how to fucking breathe, right? He's, he's talking to a, a chick psychologist <laughs> who he has no, he doesn't fucking. He has no respect for. Correct. Because he has no context. There's no yeah. instructor credibility. Yeah. Whereas you get a, a, um, an ex-major from two commander, you get a SAS squadron commander, you get a shooter from S. You get one of the boys that goes, yeah, you just you just, just get a good read. a good relatable dude who knows his shit. Yep. Yeah. That is the purpose of this podcast, mate. All right. So the boys out there listening to it go, oh, they my psych said to breathe, but she was 21 straight out of uni. Yeah. I didn't listen to it. Oh, Max just said, I'm gonna do it now. Yeah. And that'll change people. Mate, oh, that's one of the, the best things I learned was this um great little session with one of the um ladies we had leading the high performance discoveries at uh, SFTC just took me through like breathing regulation for like 60 minutes and you're sitting there going well, we're going to fucking be going home or whatever but that is the number one skill set I've actually used and is the most applicable to the corporate life from going into a boardroom before or even having uh, before having a key conversation I actually know that I'm going to get nervous I know that I actually might get anxious because I want to achieve the best not because I'm actually fearful of what's going on and I sit there and like take a few fucking quick breaths or do some of the things that she taught me. And it's, you know, enabled, you know, me to perform at, you know, 80 or 90% as opposed to 50 or 60%, which is what happens as soon as your body just starts dumping cortisol. Mm. I'm a massive advocate of breathing. I mean, my sister, we were going to Afghan and my sister was like, hey, you know, there's some things you can do to control stress. I don't know, she... And she's like, you can, you can breathe. And I was like, who the fuck are you telling me to breathe? Like, I'll be all right. Don't worry about it. Yeah. But she's like, you know, this uh, it wasn't like firing up your chakras or anything crazy like that, but it was just breathing and, and, the, and the mindfulness and connecting yeah. to that. Uh, and then there's a couple of nights where, you know, there was a – you go to a particular area, you know you're going to get into a gunfight. Mm-hmm. And we were – a couple of nights before we'd go, all the boys would be anxious. Everyone would be – like excited to fucking go, but you're like, I need to go to bed because we're going on patrol in four hours. Yep. And 100%, I fucking do the breathing exercise my sister taught me, and I go to fucking sleep. Mm. You know what I mean? Yep. And then I was so, I'm a massive advocate for that breathing stuff. I mean, it's, it's the, the core of your, your central nervous system, everything you do. And it's it's so crazy. It's just like the easiest thing to learn. Mm. So everything, like, there's, there's a bunch of research, and they're always looking for one variable and why, why this does that. But everything that works for me, hopefully the same for you boys comes back to primal evolution or primal biology. And if you're running away from tigers or if you're running towards something you've got to kill, you're taking short, sharp breaths. Yeah. And so you're in a fight or flight state. If you're calm and relaxed, you breathe long and slow. Yeah. So, and Laird Hamilton was talking with a big wave surfer. He was talking about this with Rogan the other day. It's like common dog fight, but it's like box breathing, but it's, he did seven in, seven out. We'll do eight in, eight out because it's more on brand. Like eight <laughs> seconds in, eight seconds out. On, yeah. If you slow breathe, eight seconds in and eight seconds out, yeah. your brain says, I'm not running away from death and I'm not running towards food. I'm chilling the fuck uh, out. Uh, and your anxiety just disappears. Are you guys doing anything like that on? So that's on the app will be eight in, eight out. Yeah, gotcha. It won't have anything to do with Led Hamilton or box breathing. It yeah. will just be this eight, eight in, eight out. <laughs> <laughs> well, the. the the lady, the professor who came um, and provided this to 
every reinforcement course, uh, the reinforcement cycle um, was exactly that, you know, just sitting there providing exactly, as you said, all these different breathing techniques from when you're feeling stressed through to how to, you know, lower your anxiety back down, go to sleep and all that. Um, again, that was one of the most amazing things I saw brought into the ab initio training phase at the Special Forces. And you're like, this should be rolled out to not only the wider army, but to like fucking everyone. Yeah. Um, the difficulty is people like need to go looking for it and finding it. Um, but so you just got to put it under their nose to start off with. Is that so? Did the boys take it on at the at the point in time, or was it like a piss take for them? Oh, no, well, you'll understand. I mean, the context is they just passed the selection course, and it's one of the first things we make them do. And you you know, there's the guys who still come off the selection course can be you know cut at any time, so they will fucking do whatever you tell them to do. Yep. And not from a point of authority, but from a point of, you know, wanting to... In that learning into the unit. Yeah, yeah, so, you know, we do everything from giving them um, the little balls and rollers to start learning trigger point release and all that, which I bet all of us fucking wish we did back in mm. the start of our careers, through to those techniques. And that that's the first thing you do is learning more about yourself. So then you can carry it forward throughout all the subsequent courses you have to do over the next 12 months. Yeah, yeah I mean... It, we're talking about the, the whole cut through thing, like, uh, like you know, they started teaching combat shooting in mainstream infantry units and stuff like that. Yep. But you'll, you'd have guys there and, and really high end secos teaching these techniques and principles, and the boys would be like that, like fucking sucking flies or whatever. Yep. And then we used to have guys come over sucking flies. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> that's good. It's good, man. And then, but then <clears throat> what we do, they they bring boys around. So a couple of guys, RSM, other regimental. Uh, couple of shooters who come across to one hour and do some uh, time, a couple of years of, of uh, limbo time at one hour yeah. and then you'd say exactly the fucking same thing and then they'd say exactly the same thing and the guy's like yeah no nah, I get it 100% you're like you fucking cocksuckers yeah. like I just fucking t- the first thing I actually learned from the corporate side of the house which again sort of explains exactly what you said is the whole approach to marketing in the end of the day we only consume a product if it's one, it's a solution to our problem, and then discerning it from the other products that all provide the solution is it has to be aspirational and relatable. Um, so, like, some in that context, what happens in the, the regular army is that all the, the normal secos, whatever, standing up doing that are relatable, but unless they've, like, done something particularly impressive or have, like, a very, very high reputation um, than the people they're talking to, they just sort of take on a face-to-face value, which I... We generally see one of the most incredible things when we then send like a corporal from two commando to the same thing to give the exact same lesson because they're aspirational and also relatable because we're in the same uniform. Everyone's hanging on their roof, fucking their word. So, I mean, that's just appreciating human nature and behavior. It's actually consumer nature and behavior. Um, I mean, for the guys reading this, watching this, um, that's one of the biggest takeaways. If you ever want to achieve anything in your workplace or within a brand or market, whatever you want to do, you have to make it aspirational and relatable. Um, Otherwise, you're just not going to achieve that cut through. Like me sitting here, I don't find myself very inspirational at all. But yet, even on my social media, I'm regularly reached out to by young officers, young soldiers wanting to go through selection only because I probably do have a bit of a social media presence because everyone else isn't allowed to. Um, And you actually appreciate that in these people's eyes, you're um, aspirational. Your job then is to make it relatable for them and just by talking to them like a normal good dude, you're going to achieve that. Yeah. I mean, just even, even developing that into a process, appreciating that as human behavior, applying that to a scalable process and applying that to... Everything you're doing is literally going to solve for what we said before is the current issue with people transitioning from the military. 
People might be relatable, but they're not aspirational. So they're just going to sit there and absorb 30% of the information. Put some aspirational people in there. People are going to process and hold on to and actually appreciate it. And the only way you're going to do that is by providing people who've had the context and the credibility of already transitioning from defense, not those who are still currently serving. Yep, correct. It's branding and cut through 100%. And it's the problem we have is everyone, all of our concepts are coming from the top the general or politician level yeah. and they're reading studies and they're going let's make the diggers do that because this research came out and it's meant to be good for people and let's do that and you need to wind it back and go let's let's consider this as a product we need to put to market and we go the brand for our military at the moment is the westernized cowboy brand we shoot guns and chew bubble gum and we're the biggest hardest men on the planet let's take the users at the user end which is the diggers or, or the mass population of the military and go the science and research says this Yoga, stretching and breathing is good for you. Mm-hmm. How do we get it to them? And at the moment, it's let's just give them research-based yoga, stretching it. And they're like, fuck no, I'm a, I'm a gunfighter. I'm not doing that. And what you need to do is just repackage it, yeah. rebrand it and go, um, this is actually good for high performance. This is not for anxiety, mental health and stress relief. Yeah. It's for high performance. Exactly the same shit yeah. in different, different wrapping, different branding. And they're like delivered, obviously, through a different yeah. channel. They're like... Everyone's doing it now. Yeah. Yeah, everybody wants to be good at breathing and stretching and well, whatever, but it's getting a lot better. It's like McDonald's. They they took apples. Everyone needs to just follow McDonald's' branding model. It's like, how do you feed fruit to kids instead of cheeseburgers? Put it in a fucking plastic bag. And they started putting apples in plastic, and kids are like, that's where toys come from. <laughs> I open it up, and they start eating it. Careful, mate. You're going to get all the single-use plastic haters out. Oh, yeah, mate. Mate. This, this, this oh, podcast make is a fun. No, we do. I mean, and I mean, you hit on even the conversations of like where policy and directions come from. Those who are unfortunately the furthest away from where the front end consumption and, and operations are required, like politicians and generals, actually. You know, and like I was saying before, like my experience with more armchair generals in the corporate world than the military, um, the the issue there is it's actually not, you know, we even chatted about, you know, bringing generals to get involved in this, that and the other. And the issue is that they are just so void and removed from where it is at the end of the day. But to be honest, like that's also their job. Like they need to be the up and out. I have this very, I have this single issue sort of zealot piece with uh, ADCs and military attache. So like ADC is, you know, the captain who's there um, as um, the aide de camp, the sort of young officer aide to the general. And most of them are there um, to further their career. They're thrusting. They're, yeah. they're thrusting. But like imagine if they were there to actually be the, the most relevant um, sounding board for that general as to how, you know, that would be perceived at the lower levels. You know, sort of shifting themselves from seeking more authority through to, hey, my responsibility is actually representational, not only to the general formally, but of where I've come from, to provide them with that context. Because they swim in this big pool with other big fish and they only know what's provided to them. You know, a lot of them they just don't physically have the time to go and find find out great detail um, and the, the higher you are the higher and higher you climb the further you know things that appear as uh, seem what is it the further things seem from your own perceptions um, 
So it's just to provide context to these people. The, the politicians do it so well in that they actually draw advisors left, right, and centre and advise them for them, but our military system doesn't structure it like that. So I put a bit of that responsibility out to any young sort of captains or majors that are, or even, you know, lieutenants who are, you know, admin officers or whatever to brigade commanders to, you know, actually present and use your competence and then character to provide and represent back up and out what you've learned from down and through as opposed to just perpetuating, um, you know, the, the, the spiralling up system. Yeah. And it's like a common sense section in Canberra. We just said that there needed to be a common sense section. Well, they do. Well, they, 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 Canberra does well. They have like great think tanks and things like that. But you guys will see every now and then, you know, the brigade commander or something will try and assemble all the section commanders of the battalions. I want to talk to them about something. And it's just not, they've lost their relatability because they have to be um, aspirational. They have to be up and out. Yep. Um, you know, it's just, yeah. I think every, everything comes from what is your end, what, what, what is your metric for success? Yep. So there is, I mean, most generals, when you get to that level, your metrics for success, we have to agree that their metric for success is the people, their peers and above who approves, who is going to approve of the idea that I just had. Yep. And they're so just like separated from the diggers at the bottom level that no one's metric for success is is anyone in the digger audience actually going to use this solution? Yeah. And that's, I mean, I don't want to... I would definitely, say, I would definitely just say for the majority. I have had the fortunate to work with a couple who, but it's only through the sacrifice of themselves that they've managed to maintain their links down and through. Exactly. Like this, the system is exactly structured to, as you say, remove further and further and further um, to get to the position where your job, your only sense, your only ability to achieve progression is through achieving favour with that above you as opposed to those below you, which arguably your job is to motivate them, lead, command, manage them to achieve success. So this success is meant to feel that as opposed to just focusing on those things that appease up and out. The balance for the two literally ends up ripping people in half. And I've seen some of, you know, peers that are much better than me at much more uh, complex jobs literally achieve that torn in half part and that's where they just exit the system because it's too much to take. And it is, I agree, and it needs to be two separate pathways because young aspiring officers especially and in guys that get to an NCO rank and they want to go ahead with their career, they often feel they've got to impress the people above them. That's fantastic for a military model. Mm-hmm. Military model is designed to get a working system that's good at fighting wars and winning them. But that's a pyramid. And the, the, the veterans affairs model needs to be the upside-down pyramid. It needs to be put the politicians and that at the bottom and their method of success to move up is how many of the, the high-risk audience, which is all the young diggers, which is the, the, the high level of the pyramid, how many of them can I impress? And it's not impressing by doing what they want me to do so yeah. that there's good media. It's impressing by doing shit that's actually successful so they stop killing themselves. Yeah. So it needs to be an upside-down triangle. Military model, perfect. It's a triangle, fight wars, win them. DVA model, flip it upside down. Yeah. Metric has to be help the diggers. Have you told them that I'm sure you guys are probably much more linked in. I mean, I'm just sort of DVA via emails awaiting responses at the moment. But. And again, this isn't a slag DVA. We're, no, no, make, we're sure. making progress and they're, they're starting to come to us. So you've got to be the noisy, like the squeaky wheel. You do. Yeah. And we've become that slowly and we are starting to link in with open arms and DVA and they're, they're acknowledging the fact that they need more young blood at the table. Yeah, for sure. They're going to have these conversations. They know they need to have them. 
let's get some dudes in that actually know what they're talking about. Just, that level. just closing that line between you know the front end user to the top end decision maker. Mm. Um, you know, I've even tried to sort of think back, sit, think, sit back, and think about what you could do in the officer world. You know, some people who could just whether you place them up there with the decision makers, but you're not going to have the authority to make decisions where people up here rely on authority. You know, imagine if you just progressed some of the you know high achieving officers you saw at a young age up through the ranks to you know be able to sit up there with the, the decision makers. I don't know. I don't know the solution. It's not an easy one, but there's marks at each level whereby you just have to try and look to collapse the um, perspective levels while maintaining the authority levels, and that's you know. The hardest thing to see, but you see it. I see it in the corporate world because it's still those CEOs and COOs and whatnot who are there in the office with their people. You know, they're not in Canberra or things like that, um, but they're able to do that because they are able to set that sort of standard themselves. It again, it takes a lot more out of a person to be inspirational and relatable whilst achieving both dividends. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't yeah, have, people can't do it. And that, yeah, I don't have the solution. You see yeah. so many guys, good dudes, get out and yeah. leave for that very reason. We all know that. That's the old cliche. All the good ones get out. Yeah. Like, <laughs> we'd like to think so anyway, but no, no, no. They ever get I mean, out of OSF. Yeah, yeah. 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 Well, that's, that's, that's a true statement. <laughs> yeah. You're 24. But you're because good, you, you see that. OSF or get out. Again, <laughs> aspirational, and you see that as a like performance and progression pathway. Yeah. But it's like well, you, you brought up, I'm going to butcher it, you, it's a quote that we need to go back to, you brought up before, it's like when you've got such a big body of people at the military, you can't make a one-off solution, you can't, it's a broad brush. It's got to be scalable. Yeah. That's the end of the day. The military has to be the most scalable system and also has to be able to operate, you know, independently of the other moving elements. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have to completely appreciate that while we sit here in this great thinking tank solving the problems like this, you know, to even bring about bring about change, what I've understood now from even change management is such is such a huge beast from you know having to combat human nature through to actually achieve policies and processes to de-risk them and mm. you know achieve workplace standards and yeah, it's not an easy thing. Yeah. It takes a lot of also a lot of leadership. It takes people sort of stepping out and being willing to make the hard decisions instead of the popular decisions. Yeah. So going so where are we? We're all over the place. Yeah, what's your daily routine? What keeps you on track every day? Uh, to be honest, like I've been off track, um, particularly the last couple of years from, it's funny, you like, uh, part of the leading team and even the PR face of like a fitness brand and you find yourself you're working out less and even consuming the brand less yourself because you you don't have a, a routine around you. You start to lose some of your self-discipline. Um, so they start to bring that in myself now and that's, you know, getting up earlier than you want to, trying to get to bed earlier than you end up doing. Um, bringing physical fitness into it is so huge. I, again, find myself probably more so suffer from um, signs of anxiety as opposed to depression. I'm the person who thinks about the future too much and my biggest fear is actually not achieving all the opportunities I can as opposed to failing. Um, I get my core frustration from seeing people not realise their potential, be that in companies or people. Uh, And I first and foremost find that if I haven't exercised for that day or even regularly, that, that's one key enabler for allowing those feelings and those responses to start bringing in. 
you know, I actually got taught from one of the customer service ladies, Heather in the US. It's like once you get in that red room and start sweating, like all the problems go away. You guys know once you start exercising and all the physical um, reactions like endorphin release, you know, lowering cortisol levels, so on and so forth that come with regular physical exercise. And if you fucking ramp it hard enough, you can't think about the future. <laughs> <laughs> you're like, you're like, my heart's going to fucking explode. That was me. going with this, I do not have a future. That was yeah. my mentality. For- well, uh, our class leader, Nicholas, she was just like, and you're going to go up another two points? I'm like, I'm going to fucking kill you. Like, <laughs> I'm not worried about my bank check, you know what I mean? Or, or oh, I've got to pay rego, I've got to do this. I'm just like, right now, I, I just don't want to die right now. Well, and again, that was the whole part of the thing particularly when I first came across, like, barriers. I'm not here promoting barriers, but um, as far as, like, me wanting to do that as a business post-defense was it was actually one of those things in this huge tech world and there was structure to, like, when you get in there, you can literally shut off. Like, someone is telling me what to do. It's a fully immersive and um, motivating atmosphere, whereas, you know, I'm achieving great physical results and the, the tangible dividends are right there, but my mind and focus is in there because if it's not, as a high-performing individual, I'm not achieving the levels and standards that I know it should be. And then imagine starting off your day every day whereby you're putting yourself through that physicality. You're increasing you know, your uh, oxygen absorption to the body through doing cardio, which most of us who get out in the military don't do. We sit there and lift. And the difference I feel these days doing cardio is actually like it does force you to breathe heavier, yep. breathe deeper, which goes straight back to everything else we are just talking about and then has all those other dividends that then carry through to your working day. Make sure you're getting good nutrition. Make sure you're getting good sleep. Repeat. Yeah, it's like the it's like a, it's a frog principle, and they talk about uh, what's that one? Where they say if your job, uh, if you've got to eat a frog for your work for a day, then eat the frog first thing in the morning. <laughs> right? <laughs> right? Was that a French? Where did that come from? And then it gets better, right? And then if your job's to eat two frogs in a day, eat the biggest frog first because if you get to work and you so it, you can yeah, and it's right yeah I know right. <laughs> Long years of alcoholism. Is that going to be on the app? Maybe. Maybe. Uh, Mate, we can work on some branding there. There's something good. You've got my attention anyway. Let's go. Because if, if, so working out, like if you've got to work out, you go to work and you are, you know, you get out of the office five, six, seven, whatever at night, and you're like, now I've got to go to the gym, and it's on your mind all day to do it. Or if there's a task in your inbox and you're like, I'm not fucking doing that. Yep. It plays on your mind all day until you finally get around to doing it. 100%. If you nail it the first thing in the morning, yep. it's done. Now I'm with you. Yeah. The, the hardest thing of the day you should try and do in the morning. And to yep. be honest, within like a very busy business and corporate world these days, often physical training does become the hardest thing to do. Um, just because we put it off, we put it off. We just we don't prioritize it. We put it down the lower of the priorities, um, and we just let it push its distance. And by the time you might make it to the gym at six or seven o'clock at night, you're half ass because you're now thinking about everything you have to do tomorrow yep. or get ready for tomorrow. So yeah, my 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 biggest uh, recommendation is like work out regularly, work out in the morning, get it done, and get yourself set. And so from from the your uh, you move out and you slide, so you notice that maybe a bit of anxiety and stuff coming yeah. in. We spoke to a couple of people. We had a, a couple of people come on and they're like, oh, when you go around Australia, do you stomp around Australia? Um, maybe you should interview some partners of people and stuff like that and tell them how they dealt with people who had dramas. Was it you that noticed that you were maybe suffering from anxiety or was it your partner, Blake, that was like, hey, man, you're being a bit of a dick? Like, no. <laughs> <laughs> All of the above. No. Um, 
I mean, I still don't even like have these conversations with Blake saying that I like, feel anxiety or whatnot. I still just see them as my own personal problems. Like even just that statement alone helps me realise I'm still not as mature I need to be with mental health and whatnot. Um, but you, the only times I really sort of started to reflect on that is when it does it spill over and start affecting your everyday life, not only at work but back at home. You know, you sort of look for opportunities to create tension because that's the way you get an argument and release the frustrations you have. It's like the old, I'm not going to say the analogy because I definitely don't kick my little pup, but, you know, walking, you know, kicking the dog, yep. taking down the dog, who's the only person there who's the loving and affectionate affirmation of you. Um, yeah, I was probably the, yeah, it, it's, I don't know. For me, it was probably like, you know, when enough people are starting to say the same thing, then you start to realise that you're the problem. Um, and unfortunately, again, going back to the sort of the type of people that we often are or become, um, it takes others to help us learn those uh, weaknesses because we're not great at learning them ourselves. And I mean, even that, you know, there's an education process for those loved ones we do keep around us to sort of, and it's a very hard thing for them to be able to like call you out and say, hey, you've been a dickhead. Do you need help? Yeah, because they've got their own bullshit they're going through as well. And then the last I one, I need fucking help. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone's got their own bullshit that they're going through, and that like the but I mean, that's life. Whether that's military or not, that's just fucking it's life. Period. Yeah, and that's just that you brought up before. Thirty-three percent of people have anxiety. That's the ones that are diagnosed. That's the one that go to a site. Go, I got a problem. Someone says I got a problem. Go to a site. They and get fuck diagnosed. getting diagnosed. So hundred percent of people have got anxiety. I don't give a fuck well, what anyone says. Yeah. I don't know anyone that doesn't yeah, have anxiety. And. The the, the the kind of the thing with anxiety is that when you're sitting there going, he's thinking, or she's thinking that about me, or he's thinking that about me in their head, and you're getting all anxious about what's going on, they're sitting in the corner going, am I good enough for this dude? And they're all having this. Look, Nicole put me onto this show the other night. I watched it on Netflix. It's Brene Brown. It's like Oprah. Like, it's not the kind of shit that I should be watching, but I started watching I'm like, this is... Not <laughs> a stereotype at all, but... No, no, but it's, then I got into it, right? I got 10 minutes yeah. into it. I'm like, this is the shit that I should be watching. Because yeah. it's, it's, it's a girl on stage doing... It's like an hour version of a TED Talk. And she breaks this stuff down well. And she tells this story, which I'm going to butcher real hard. But she says she takes her and her husband and the kids to some lake in Texas. And she's in her 40s or whatever. Probably not. I probably just made her real angry. She, she looks like in her early 40s. And she's in a swimsuit. So the whole day she's, like, she's anxious about, does my husband still think I'm in a swimsuit? And, and all this shit's going through her head. She's getting fucked up with anxiety. And she says something to her husband across the water going, I'm really glad, like, I'm really glad we're here or, or some form of love compliment mm. and he doesn't respond and that fucking makes it go <laughs> way worse way, and she just spirals out of control and then half an hour later she got, pulls him up she's like, why didn't you say anything? And she's like, oh, fuck, I'm sorry, I had a dream last night that the kids got run over by a speedboat and the whole time I'm sitting there having a panic attack trying to get that out of my mind and so that just proves like she's there having an anxiety attack going... <coughs> I, I'm, I'm like good enough and he's here going I'm having a panic attack going and every, everybody's got it yeah. everybody's got anxiety yeah for sure and yeah. I think that's I think if you take what Swiss Age trying to do what, what the whole concept is what guys like you do and, and what we were saying about cut through if you if you start using veterans as the most should like they've gone through some serious shit mm. or ERs or, or firefighters or whoever and go those guys have come through it and now they've got cut through and now 
we know that all of society's got most people like the, the, the model's broken the western model's a little bit broken if people are most people like one in three have got anxiety that's undiagnosed we definitely know the, the, the things more if you find people are going to put your hand up like I've been through it I've lived through this and I can get you out of that fucking hole yeah. and, and not a doctor because people say it's lived experience that they believe in and they trust a doctor saying something they're like you're just a fucking doctor I don't trust you but I've been there I've been in that hole and I'll get you fucking out of it yeah. if you believe and trust me and that's I think the utility that we can do with Swiss A is give it to not just veterans we have to stay with the veteran profile first yeah. and not pivot stay in your niche but look after fucking everyone yeah. the whole it doesn't matter where you are whether you're you know white black gay straight emergency services nursing everyone's dealing with this bullshit in the western world and yeah. and there's something that needs to be done about it for sure i mean the, the only way you should learn about these things is when someone else explains it in a way in which you understand it i mean I myself have sat here and tried to figure out why within the veteran community we are experiencing so much of it. And the only sort of way I can relate it back to is like working within the military or, you know, even those emergency services and responses you're talking to. You literally, it becomes that working with your family. So what we've done is we've provided people with an employment that also achieves cut through to their emotional intelligence side of the house, that their value, how they feel value, which outside of those structures is actually felt in the family unit. So we've put them in employment within their family unit. So you're basically achieving the best of the both, both worlds. Um, and, you know, you would see in civilian life, people most of the times have issues void of sort of drug... Well, people mostly have issues with suicide when there's, like, issues within the family unit, whether it's divorces, whether it's, you know, whatever else it is. We're actually seeing exactly that, but we're not realising the context is that our work is our family unit. Mm-hmm. You know, they don't... They keep thinking that, you know, it's all these military guys who've seen and done bad shit, rah, 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 rah. Like, I would happily argue that I've seen and done, you know, some of the worst shit that, you know, but I chose to do that, and that's not what affects me. I sleep soundly at night. I have no issues with that. What affects me is like sort of your loss of identity, the loss of people knowing who you are, the loss of people just respecting you for who you are and having the context of like having that shared experiences through adversary. Like that's losing yourself and losing your identity is the hardest thing to deal with. It's not all everyone's like, oh, you know, these guys deployed overseas and saw this bad. There definitely is that component. But I would say that that is just fuel that gets thrown on the fire that's already burning. Yep, 100%. Like the fire starts from your loss of value, you know, your loss of purpose, your loss of that family, something within that family unit feeling has gone and then everything else pours out. Yeah, I'm not a psych, so I don't want to speak out of term, but I'm I'm 100% confident in this statement. There's some dudes in Sydney, there's some dudes in Perth, there's a handful of dudes from, from combat units around Australia, maybe a minute, minute few scattered around the rest of the wider military yeah. that have PTSD. They've been in a traumatic situation where they've seen or done some shit yeah. and that's that's causing some issues. Everybody else is falling victim to the fact that they don't understand what's going on. Yeah. They don't understand why they're anxious and they're depressed and they watch the TV and the TV says, if you're a veteran and you've fucking got some dramas, it's yeah. PTSD. So straight away they think they've got PTSD it's far from the truth. Yep. There's, 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 again, like I said, I'm not a psych, so I don't want to diagnose people, yep. but if, if there isn't something that you can put your finger on and go, that's cause, that is that situation is causing me dramas, yep. then you should start speaking to a psych and go, why? what are the other things that could be causing what I've got going on? They no longer have a system around them to help them support diagnose that, and the only system they have is their actual family unit, which is probably one of the most removed from 
their other yes. profession. So like, and you're not setting them up for success. So arguably, like you know, ninety percent of the training that could help mitigate all these things doesn't actually need to be apart from like identifying and dealing with and regulating. You know, it actually needs to be given to them and their partner, them and their family unit, because they're the first line of defence. They are now the actual family unit as opposed to the employment unit. Fuck, mm-hmm. that's a bad. We're actually going. We're going on Friday to talk with these guys in Newcastle about building. Yeah. Some kind of fucking educational training for yeah. families, for veterans themselves to go. Here's, and it's going to be delivered by boys like us going, here's the shit that you're going to feel. Get used to it. We're going to talk about feelings. And it's going to feel like this. And this is where it could come from. And say the same thing to the family. It's going to be very, like, not male delivered, but very, very, like, alpha orientated to go. It's okay to want to be hard as fuck, but we're better break it down and this is what your family's going to notice and, and try and give them some kind of mental health first aid training that comes from a veteran. Sure. And that's it. I mean, you guys in there drinking your whiskey and all that, they're great people for it because, again, aspirational, relatable, but also just real and common sense. Yeah. And you have to be able to do it in a way whereby people want to listen to it as opposed to turn up, you have to do this. I mean, they might have to be a part of that, otherwise some people won't realise, but people just need to want to know this. That's over to you. Yeah, it's got to come you from. and Swiss Yeah, so here's the challenge to you. And you <laughs> oh, right. Three glasses deep, right? You've got, you, you got to start talking to Blake about your shit too. Yeah. And it's going to come, there's going to come a point in everyone's, like mine, I'll give you a quick, long wheel. quick story. From Blake. I was okay talking about some of my shit until mm. I got to the point where I was watching fucking A Star Is Born yeah. in, in um, gold class at Melbourne, Melbourne Casino. And there was 10 other people in the room. It got to the end of the movie where the dude hangs himself. Yeah. And I started fucking crying like a baby. Like, yeah. I acknowledged the fact that there's a room full of people and I was like, I'm just, I'm going, I'm going. And normally, like, Boom. the core of me was like, bottle it up, mate. You're not doing this. <laughs> You're fucking used to be in the army, used to be a soldier. No one's allowed to see this. And then I was yeah. like, nah. And that was my turning point. Yeah. And from that day on, if anything needed to be spoken about, I'm like, I'm comfortable talking about this shit. Yeah. So everybody's got to get to that point. You've got to get there in your own right. But yeah. Yeah, if, if if you want a challenge to take away from this, talk to him, mate. Awesome. It's easy for someone else to, like, talk to that person for you, though. Like, mm. it's so difficult, though. Yeah. 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 It's funny. I think you it, – it's so – I love having these conversations when you're actually, like, speaking with others who actually – appreciate and understand all we're talking about is emotional intelligence you know being aware of your own emotions yeah. otherwise it's you, emotional intelligence is otherwise like this you know what is it it's something that's out there it's like culture all this sort of shit yeah, so but, it's, um, not, it's just being it's like knowing it's just understanding yourself yeah. and we're taught throughout our careers how to understand as how to understand ourselves physically but not emotionally and you know we're taught all these motivational techniques and things like this but at the core of our form fit and function are emotions that are again the, the fire that burns inside you know having non-emotive people is fine being able to remove having non-emotive people is different to be able to remove emotion from the situation yeah. the correct application of emotion you will see it yourself you know leaders who actually demonstrate passion at the critical point or time or decision you know you, you achieve a, a magnifier a multiplier of 10 on whatever the fuck they're saying because you can see the belief in their eyes. Um, emotion is powerful. It's just how you harness it, control it, and learn and understand it. And it's just professionalizing that system and then scaling it to the defense, applying it to the most critical point in time, which at this point in time for 
you know, the lethality we're experiencing is in the transition period from defence and then seeing how we can bring that in systemically from where to go. Yeah, I think it's time the army starts going. Uh, it's not just a... We're going to get in so much trouble with this. <laughs> time the army did this. Isn't it when they say it's not just a job, it's a lifestyle, but then you start believing that. So no, it is, yeah. You've got to, you've got to practice solution. what you preach. And you, if it's going to be a lifestyle, you need to support a lifestyle and you need to train a lifestyle, not, prof- not train individuals to perform a function that they should be living, eating and breathing in their lifestyle, but how to actually cope uh, So the army needs to grow up and go from... from <laughs> 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 So you know what you said, you're leaving the door open and get back in here, that's dead now. I'm talking like from World War I, World War II, we're growing divisions. All you need is a gun and a tin hat and you can go, and I don't really care because you're probably not going to make it back. But hey, look. (laughs) But, you know, ultimately they're growing divisions of battalions that go overseas at at a mass scale. And I don't think the training model has progressed to the fact where now their career expectancy is more than four years. They get out and be a farmer. We don't talk about mental health. Now their career expectancy is four to 12 to 15 years. They get out and they have a career. So you now need to start reintegrating people back into society. You can teach them to be a killer and you can teach them to be a high-end performer physically, but if we don't give them the tools once the eat their emotional intelligence. Yeah. So this is, and I'll accept your challenge and the challenge back to you guys, and you're already doing it here. It's the only way to bring about true and effective change is actually from the ground up. So, like, things to take away from this is, like, you through your network and me through my network is actually working with our peers who are at that interface, who are at, um, you know, the flywheel of people turning in, arriving into the army or actually dealing with what they need to do to to have those conversations because if we're not having it with them, you, we can't wait for it to come top down mm. because by the time it comes from top down, it's coming from a perspective that may already have been out-rotated in relevance from what's actually going on down here. So exactly through the things that you guys are doing um, is, is, is on point with what we need to be doing and then probably even, you know, me and myself getting more active to have those conversations, seek out those conversations. Yeah. Okay. I really appreciate it. Boom. Hey, look, uh, I think we're we're probably about out of time, but, um, man, I'd love to get you on again. I think there's about 900 podcasts in your head (laughs) that we could get out. So uh, I think we'll wrap it up there, man, but glad to have you on, man. Thanks for having us, guys. It's been a pleasure. Magic. Cheers.